Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, as we continue our introduction to a study in the book of Galatians and the gospel. As we reflect upon this text this morning, I pray that we can bring further clarity some of the things that we mentioned last week and even move a step beyond that. This last song that we introduced to you is so appropriate for the culture in which we live, and for me it contains words for the weary. I look at the absurdity of this culture, the foolishness of man, the changes that are seismic and have eternal consequences, and I wonder, what in the world? How how did we get here? How did this happen? I'm I'm comforted in the context of Scripture, and even through the singing of, of words like we sang this morning, that God knows. He's given us the answers. He's given us a charge as we follow His direction in the midst of these culture wars, in the midst of the battle for the truth, we can find a way. God will make a way. And as God makes a way and we find a way, we will be the church and we will speak loudly and we will stand firmly on the truth that sets you free and you shall be free indeed. Well, this morning my voice is going to come and go. It has been all week. Um, I have to throw a cough drop in. Be patient with me. It's just the nature of the beast right now, a busy week, lots of talking. Um, but there's an upside and a silver lining to, to every cloud. So when you approach me, I can just say, yeah, I can't, I can't talk this morning. Just kind of just kind of walk, walk. Isn't it funny how the words that we say or the words that we speak have an impact on our mind? So whoever I might walk past this morning is going to think, is he talking about me? You see, words are powerful. Words have a way of influencing. Words can change the context of a conversation. And the very thoughts that enter into my mind. We must take every word captive. We must take whatever words are spoken grab a hold of them, and ask ourselves what's really being said. What's going on here? And is it true? We don't seem to ask that anymore. Is it true? Partially for fear of the reaction that we might get in this world. Partially for the reality of that truth undermining our very position and statement. Partly because we live in a world in which truth has been all but erased, at least in certain segments. I want you to know that there still exists a truth in life. It is what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. It is the kind of truth that cuts through all the gibberish, the kind of truth that informs words, the kind of truth that releases meaning and intent of my own to 
the meaning and intent of the facts and the realities, and as Francis Schaeffer called it, true truth. He believed all the way back in the late 1960s, coming out of that 60s rebellion, that the most crucial problem facing the church and Christianity at that particular time was the concept of truth. Is there absolute, unchanging, true for all ages, for all times, and for all people? Does it still exist? Or is there a relevancy to truth where it is malleable and we can make it say or make it do what we want it to do? We're dealing with the implications of that. This wedge that has been driven in our culture between true truth and felt truth. Listen carefully. Facts don't care about your feelings. There are facts and presuppositions and absolute truths that have nothing to do with how you feel. They have nothing to do with the place that you find yourself in life. They have nothing to do with the realities of, 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 of your life, and no matter how persuaded you might be that it's truth, they must be held up against the absolute truth. Schaefer calls it true truth. As we look at that true truth, it is truth that it simply always has been, always will be, whether we like it or not. But you see, we live in a culture that is not based on true truth. We live in a culture that is based on whether or not I like it. And there are pitfalls to that. Serious, serious pitfalls for the culture at large, for the church, I believe, even for the individual Christian. Is it true? That's the salient question of our day. But you see, in order to discern that truth, it takes some time and some energy and we don't have that time or energy because, oh, our phone just pinged again. Put it down. Is this really true? What you're going to find out is there's a lot of nonsense in our world. In fact, if you really look at it, there's absurdity everywhere, absolute absurdity. How did we get here? We erased true truth, and we made it relevant to me and to my truth, and to your truth. And there is no more our truth, and therefore there's no truth at all. As we reflect on that, and as we wrestle through that, this relativism in our culture has even infiltrated the church. And based on our feelings or inclinations, without any investigation, without any logic, what we feel and what we know are the same thing. But listen carefully. That makes what we feel, my beliefs and feelings, just as authoritative as true truth. And all of a sudden, we've confused the two. It's true because I believe it. You've heard the saying. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. 
Pay close attention. That's absurd. God said it. That settles it. He's not beholden to what you feel is true. He's not going to bend His truth to your relativism. God said it. That's the end of the discussion. Well, what if I don't believe it? Well, that's on you. We're going to show you that's a perilous path to take. True truth is not based on you. And there's a disparity between your truth and what is factual and logical and God-inspired truth. You're entitled to your opinions. You're not entitled to your truth. Because as soon as you are entitled to truth, you run headlong into somebody else's truth that is contrary to another's truth, that is contrary to another's truth. And all of a sudden, there is no truth but absolute chaos. And everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Schaefer was basically getting at this notion that truth corresponds to what is observably true. We talked about it last week. A boy is a boy, not a dog and a cat and a frog and a turtle. A boy is a boy, and a girl is a girl. That is true truth. We can try and erase that all that we wish to, but it's absurd when we start to erase true truth. It undermines the very notion that there can be any sense of consensus or unity in a culture or even in the church. The correspondence view of truth simply means that truth corresponds with that which is presupposed, the very first things of life. Now, when we talk about first things in life, we're not talking about first things in numerical order. We're talking about first things or foundational things that are right and necessary. Let's try this one out. In the beginning, God created. What do you suppose that means? Let's try this. In the beginning, God created. There is nothing that is that wasn't created by the divine creator. Pretty simple, right? We, 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 we boil it all down. It corresponds to, to reality. Therefore, we're not going to know everything perfectly. But we can know what He's created us to know. For the heavens declare the glory of God. He reveals Himself to us. And as God reveals Himself to us, the correspondence view of, of truth is what I say to be true must be in keeping with what I know to be true and what God has revealed to me. But our culture lives in a different truth entirely. And philosophers and, and, and thinkers throughout the ages have struggled with this, and they propose not a correspondence theory of truth, a truth that coincides with facts, to what they call a coherence theory of truth. As long as my argument is logical and coherent, then it's true. But listen carefully. Your argument can be logical and coherent, yet still not correspond to reality and what we know to be true. 
There's some very persuasive arguments for those who say, well, for those struggling with sex and gender issues, they were born that way, except they're not born that way, because along came the trans. So now you weren't born that way. It is fluid sooner or later, and your capacity to reason, you will determine who you are. You understand how ludicrous that is? Born that way seems like a a coherent, cohesive argument, but it's vacuous because there's nothing that it rests on. It's this web, and it's all connected. But what's the foundation? What is the ultimate presupposition? And you notice the presupposition is this. No, we do not acknowledge that God created us in His image. We refuse to accept that. And thereby, a cohesive theory of truth, no matter how coherent it might be, leads to what many philosophers call this angst. It is unable to answer the biggest questions of life. Those biggest questions of and in life must be answered by God alone, something outside of us. You follow me? Many arguments made today, even in the church, are made on this coherence theory of truth. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, Pastor Jim. Well, let's compare it to reality. Oh, no, it doesn't make any sense at all. That's what Francis Schaeffer called true, too. Does it stand up to the facts? Well, there are other sorts of truth, but they just lead to a very dangerous, dangerous kind of truth. Although true truth doesn't tell us exhaustively everything that is true, tells us about a creator God. It tells us about who man is and who women are. It tells us something about nature, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then based on Scripture, God fills in the blanks and helps us to understand that there is a true truth that is true and unified, and God has revealed it to us. We can live there, or we can choose not to live there, but it doesn't change the fact that there is true truth that is outside of yourself, and your opinions and feelings are secondary at best. This isn't a problem just in the culture. This has become a problem in the church. And it's where we get the gospel wrong. God chose me because He knew I would choose Him. Let's stop and break that down. So God's action as the sovereign God of the universe, the creator of all things, is dependent now on you. Nope, that's not how this works. In the beginning, God. There is a God, and I hate to break it to you, you're not Him. As we wrestle with this in the church today, theology and the gospel have become so muddied and muddled. So we thought it important that in this introduction, remember this as a big, long introduction to our study in Galatians. It's one more week beyond this. You say, well, I'm tired already. Well, stick with it, all right? Um, Because it matters for you and your children and your children's children. 
Aren't you thankful for all of these crazy people out there and all of their existential threats? It's going to end our universe as we know it, that we serve a God who is on His throne, and He'll say when it's done, thank you. Aren't you, aren't you thankful for true truth? There are implications for this, and we'll grapple with some of them this morning. Father, bless us. Encourage us. Challenge us. Show us true truth. Forgive us, every one of us, guilty for making truth our truth, a relative truth, a truth that somehow serves us instead of a truth that leads us all the way home. Encourage us as we embark again some introductory comments to our study in Galatians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We started last week by reading in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty. Now, if you were to sort through that list and look at what is transpiring, you will find that many of the sins and character traits of that epoch in history that is a godless age in history are directly tied to truth and true truth or the rejection thereof. When you reject true truth, all of a sudden life becomes about you, so you become a lover of self, lover of money and proud and arrogant. All of it's tied to the realities of truth. But what Paul says is that there's a world out there in which truth abounds, yet they've rejected that truth, and they're described as always learning but never able to come to a true knowledge of the truth. They don't want true truth. They want their truth. And by rejecting true truth, they create this fantasy world for themselves. But there is angst in that fantasy world because it never addresses the deepest issues of life. And it's only leaving me with myself. And these sins in chapter 3 are really fleshly, selfish kinds of sins. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, we are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The psalm writer in Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, that's a really important statement. Let me show you something. The fool is judged not by believing there is no God, but by saying there is no God. The fool is one who says, well, there may be a God, but I'm going to live my life my way. That is a foolish notion. And I'm going to show you as we go through this message and, and look at some of what's happening here, that the truth of the matter is that even the fool knows that there's a God. They just don't like it. They just don't like it. They don't like what he has to say. They don't like that it's not all about them. One of the telltale signs in Christianity today is the notion that our testimonies are mostly about us. Did you ever notice that? Maybe this ought to be our testimony. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It says nothing, 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 remind you of where we've been, to do about you. This is all about Him. It's His story in 
us. When we look at this true truth and the rejection of this truth in the world, we, we come across this notion that, that even the unbeliever, the fool, knows that there is true truth. They have given that consideration. They understand that there is a God, but they don't believe that He's necessary to their life or to their decisions or to the way they do things. So, therefore, truth is solely relegated to their point of view, how they see life and how they want life to be. Let me tell you about a bumper sticker I saw on my way home from Connecticut yesterday. It was perfect. Plastered car, bumper stickers everywhere, one that catches your eye, a gender atheist. Okay. Just next to it, female lives matter. Follow me? You can't fix stupid. People say, oh, that's offensive. What do you want me to say? Ignorant? They're not ignorant. They know there's a God. This woman, and that's the person driving, I'm not, I'm just saying, wants to be a general, a gender atheist, but she still wants to hang on to the notion that she's a woman. You can't have it both ways. That's the coherence view of truth. True truth says, yeah, it's one way or the other. That's not an option for her. She doesn't fit what she's feeling or thinking at the time. This denial of absolutes and true truth has made its way through Western civilization, and none of us are there better for it. Let me tell you how it plays out, and then we'll get into our text. When truth becomes relative, when truth is solely understood from my vantage point and what I feel is true, everyone is right in their own eyes, and everybody's doing something different. And the result in the culture, and this is the age in which we're living, is absolute chaos. Have you noticed the chaos in the world today? It is absolute chaos. But here's the funny thing. The coherence theory of truth often finds itself back in this place where truth is relevant, and it just has to make sense to me. But in the chaos of making sense to me, it doesn't make sense to another person, and it doesn't make sense to another person, and it doesn't make sense to another person. So, Entering into our world based on that perspective is all the hatred and the envy and the strife that we see politically and in the culture today. What enters into the world is this, this sex confusion, uh, racial confusion, and we're trying to figure out the world without looking in all of the right places. And because the world has become so chaotic… And not everybody can be true. Even the relativists would have to agree not everyone could be true. Then somebody has to stand up and define what, and I'll use Schaefer's words, what true truth is. Follow me? 
And if it's not God, you mark my words, it's going to be somebody else. And eventually what that becomes is the people who have the power make the rules. So it's the government that determines what's true. You understand the implications for that? That is the culture and truth wars that we find ourselves in today. The government does not make decisions solely on what is good for society. But political leaders of our day make decisions based on what is politically expedient for the next election. And there is no truth in that. On either, listen, on either side of the aisle. There is a God or there isn't. There is a true truth or there isn't. I am telling you, there is a God and He is the only source of truth. Traditionally, the authority of natural law has been found in the Creator, its content, in the design He imparted to us, and the power by which we recognize it in the faculty of reason, which is also a part of the design which God includes deep conscience as a part. Bojashevsky, in his book, What You Can't Not Know, says, the world will always result in chaos if you choose to deny the things that you can't not know. Now, that's terrible grammar. I get it. What he's saying is these things are self-evident in the natural world, yet we've rejected those things, and because we've rejected those things, this is the outcome. And he says you can't live that way. You can't live with the things that you can't not No. In other words, there's dire consequences for rejecting in the beginning God. You follow that line of reason? It's called natural law. According to the Scriptures, as Paul in in the first three chapters of of the book of Romans is, is ripping away excuses from both Jew and Gentile, says in chapter two of Romans, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires… They are a law to themselves even though they don't have a law. Now, here's what he's saying. Even Gentiles who didn't get the law of the Old Testament, all the rules and demands of God, understand that there are certain true truths in this world today, and nobody taught them those truths. They just know them to be true, the sanctity of life. I would suggest until 50 years ago, maybe 70 years ago, the sanctity of marriage. Every culture and every place had their aberrations, their perversions of marriage, but almost every culture believed that marriage was between one man and one woman. Today, that's just a ludicrous notion, but they all knew it. Why? Because being created in the image of God, God stamped that image, and, and, and they knew that there was true truth that was outside of themselves. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, and their conscience also bears witness. And even their conflicting thoughts to that truth accuse them. Even someone who doesn't feel guilty is guilty, because deep down inside they know thou shalt not kill. 
shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not… There, there are certain things that we just know. It is that created essence and natural law. So, when we look at that, we acknowledge, and G.K. Chesterton acknowledges this, men may keep a sort of level of good. There are men and women outside of the fold of faith with the natural law of God written on their hearts that can still be good people. They can keep their marriage vows. They can be honest and trustworthy. They can be hardworking. But no man has ever been able to keep on one level of evil. That road goes down and down and down. Just when I think we're at the bottom of that road, voila, we're not even close. Have you noticed how that happens? George Orwell said, we've now sunk to a depth at which restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent man. We don't even understand true truth anymore. Let's take abortion. How do we get to the place where we celebrate up until the moment of delivery? It's okay to kill a child, but we know it's not okay to kill a child, so we change the words that we use. It's just a mass. It's just a fetus. It's just a glob of, of tissue. You see how we change the words? Why do we change the words? Even the godless unbeliever knows thou shalt not kill. They know it. They know it. And they know it. It's called the natural law. Is that enough to save? No. No, it's not. But it's enough to condemn. So as Paul in 2 Timothy talks to Timothy, he warns them about that epoch in history in which they were experiencing the selfishness of man where truth no longer exists. Lo and behold, what does he do? He brings them back to truth. Look at verse 10 of 2 Timothy. But you, time and time again in the last several chapters, in fact, throughout the book of 2 Timothy, he's giving us different perspectives. He's saying, Well, there's this, and then there's you, and there's this, and then there's you, and then there's this, and then there's you. And he's saying, hey, listen, there's a world in which evil prevails, and truth is based on feeling, and selfishness rules the day. And then, as Christians, there is you, and Paul reminds this young man, you, however, have followed my teaching. What was Paul teaching? He says in chapter 2, committing the faithful word to faithful men. He was teaching Timothy in the faith based on true truth that was contained in the Scriptures. Timothy, you've seen my life. Those Scriptures mean something to me. Timothy, you know my aim in life and my faith and my patience and my love and my steadfasting. Timothy, you know my persecutions and what and my sufferings, what happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I'd endured. Yet from all of them, the Lord rescued. Timothy, you know this matters to me. I've showed you and taught you that true truth matters to me, and I have passed that on to you. Timothy, do you understand what I'm saying? 
Do you understand the importance of the things that we are communicating? Do you understand the essence of the gospel? Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is so pertinent to today. Now, remember, we've got to tie it to the godlessness in the last days. He said, in a godless world, when you choose to live godly, there will be dire consequences. And there have never been greater consequence for the believer in my lifetime than there is today to proclaim true truth. Some of us are shocked. How could this be? Part of it is we confused our Christianity with our patriotism. And we confused our standing in Christ with being a citizen of the West. And they're not the same thing. They hate you because they hated him, and they hate everything that he stands for. So, Timothy, if you're going to stand on the things that I taught you, if you're going to stand upon the things that are right and that you know to be right, if you're going to desire to live godly in this present age filled with all of this godlessness, get ready, hang on. Not only will you be persecuted, evil people and impostures will go from bad to worse. Oh, that's a pleasant thought. Deceiving and being deceived. The absurdity of the culture is going to continue to unravel to levels that you can't even imagine. Timothy asks, as for you, continue in what you have learned. Continue what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. A couple things that are really important in the text that I'll point out, particularly as we lay the groundwork for studying Galatians, the notion that there's only one gospel. Remember what we said in the end of chapter 2? That we pray and tell the truth so that those who hear may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil because they're captive. Remember that? What I don't want you to believe is that their captivity means they're not culpable because it's not true. Yes, they're captive to the evil one but they are culpable for opposing the truth. He says so right in that text. It will go bad to worse. They will continue to be in postures. They will continue to challenge the truth. They will deceive and and be deceived. They are opposed to truth. They are responsible. Now, why are they responsible to truth? Really important. If you missed everything I said up until now, this is the important connection because of natural law. Because even in their unbelief, they know that there is true truth. There are some fixed things in the universe that never can be changed. The heavens, 
declare the glory of God. There is no God. Sorry, you can't have it both ways. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. So, although they are captive by the evil one, they are culpable because the world shouts that there's a God. They just don't want to hear it. The world shouts that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. They just don't want to hear that. The world shouts against everything that God has declared to be true. So, even in their captivity, there is enough out there in the universe, come next week or we're going to explain it all to you, that they are culpable to the reality that there is a God and they are not Him. It also helps us in verse 13, or 11, or 12 and 13 to understand that for those in the context of the church, and that's where Paul is writing to this young pastor Timothy in the context of local church ministry, there is nowhere to hide for those who oppose the truth. They will be exposed by those who think biblically. Not only is the world going to hate you, there are also going to be those who've posed as Christians that will hate you too, because you're robbing them of the right of their truth and saying, your truth doesn't matter. This true truth is the only thing that does. How do we do that? We continue and the things that we have learned and have firmly believed. We know that God's revealed Himself to every person through natural law, and we believe that God has revealed Himself to us through the pages of His Scripture. So, every time you speak and every time you, you do, we're going to hold you up against that accountability of Scripture to see whether those things be so. We're, we're going to hold you accountable for that. We're going to challenge you when you're thinking. That's not what the Bible says, because you profess and you are in the church. But I'll remind you that someone who makes a profession isn't necessarily a believer. Because a profession without a belief in true truth means that you're religious, not rescued. Even the demons believe and tremble. But as for you, Timothy, there's a fundamental difference between you and the rest of the world, and it's measured in that you have learned the Scriptures. You firmly believed in the Scriptures. You've seen it in the way it manifests itself, knowing from whom you learned it, not just the Apostle Paul, but, but from his mother and grandmother in a moment. He, he, he'll address some of that. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise through faith in Christ Jesus. This goes back to Schaefer's true truth. Listen carefully. Natural law and true truth for the unbeliever is not exhaustive truth, nor is it exhaustive truth for the Christian. The gospel in its simplicity allows us to come for forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ alone there's so much more to the gospel than that, but we don't understand or discover or learn that until we come to know Him because we can't see spiritual things. You follow me? Some of us think we're okay just because we made a profession. 
The proof is in the pudding, and what is the proof? You know my conduct, and you know my teaching, and you know my aim of life, and you know my faith, and you know my patience, and you know my love, and you know my steadfastness. The proof, Paul says, this is real to me. You've seen it in my life. So where do young people see it? They see it first in their mothers and grandmothers, their fathers, and the people closest. And then, thankfully, they see it in in the people that those moms and dads expose their children to, who uphold the truth and live out that truth and, and believe that truth and are devout followers of Christ. There's a really important statement here. Uh, you have You've known this truth since childhood, and he's implying that since childhood you understood that truth. There are some simple things about who God is that are understandable to a kindergartner. My son, in one, way back in the day, had a unique translation for Psalm 23. You know the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here was this child's version, cubbies, I think, at the time. So we're talking really small. The Lord is my shepherd, I can't want. He's my shepherd. He got, he got it all taken care of. You understand the simplicity of truth? It is so clear that a child can understand it. We say, well, we're not going to expose our children to the big service until they're 16, and then they'll understand. You're making a grave error. Sometimes these children understand more than you do. The great, grand truths the Word of God. From childhood, you've, you've known this. Points out the importance of the family. In fact, the critical importance of the family. Stop giving your children to the government. Stop giving them to the church. It's your job. But make sure you put your children in a place where the people that they choose as mentors are standing for the same things that you're standing for. Because words matter, and a planted doubt can become a real doubt in a child's mind. All Scripture, Timothy, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, you are wrong, for correction, this is right and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, competent, equipped for every good work. We must teach our children the gospel of Jesus Christ and true truth, and instead we give them a steady diet even in our churches of my personal experience. Or just serve the Lord and it'll all work out, but that is not the gospel. That is a gospel of works. You must tell them that they're sinners and that Christ died for them according to the Scripture, that He raised again the third day, and neither is there salvation in any other. But they don't understand all of the deep truth about it, but they understand the simple truth, and that truth can set them free. You understand? But it doesn't end there. We still have to be immersed in Scripture and teach and teach and teach and teach. Timothy, the antidote to the godlessness of this age is the truth of the Scripture. You know what he's saying, right? I don't care about your feelings. There is a true truth that must be the ground and basis for everything that we do in culture, but most importantly, in a local church setting.
He lays out for us a doctrine of the Scripture, and it's an important doctrine. It involves inspiration. This book, everything that God has given to us in this book, is true. Your children are going to hear, oh, just a bunch of men wrote that. God said, no, it came from my very breath. It's my word given over to you. We're living in this age now that, well, Paul was a misogynist, and, 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 and the family unit is patriarchal in nature. It's all backwards, and, and we've got to change all of that. Listen carefully. Paul begins this letter to Timothy by saying, Paul, an apostle. You know what that means? I am the apostle Paul, chosen by God to bring his message to you, and it's an authoritative message. So, if you have an issue with the family or the home or these first principles. Your issue isn't with Pastor Jim. Your issue is with God. Your issue isn't with Paul. Your issue is with God, for Paul only did what God told him to do and showed him to do. That's the inspiration of Scripture. And because it came from the mouth of God, that is where it derives its authority. Nothing I say from this pulpit is authoritative unless it is the Scripture. You follow me? It's not the pulpit that brings authority to the Word. It is God who brings authority to His Word because it's inspired. It's inerrant. It has no errors whatsoever. Yeah, but no buts about it. It has no errors. It is sufficient. You mean to tell me that's exhaustive? That's not what Schaefer said. That's not what I'm saying, but it's sufficient for life and godliness. Everything in there is relative to life as we know it. Nature, natural law, proclaims its creator. Scripture tells us who that creator is. Nature shows you the results of his deeds in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. But Scripture tells you the result of these deeds and how he worked in history. Nature manifests to you his moral requirements, and Scripture says you don't measure up. Scripture is more important than natural law. Natural law is not superfluous. Natural law matters. And then God adds the details. The Word of God is perspicuous. It is clear, and it's understandable even to a child. I don't like when Pastor Jim speaks. It makes my head hurt. It's it's too hard for me to understand. Well, grow up. Because the Word of God will make you wise unto salvation. Embrace its first principles. All of it is being true and authoritative and inerrant. Say, God, open my eyes that I may see. Here's a funny thing. Through His Spirit, He opens your eyes that you can see. Now it becomes crystal clear. Oh, it's too deep for my kids. No, your kids are too shallow because they weren't raised with these natural realities and immersed in the Scripture at a young age. If we are going to stem the tide of this truth war, not a culture war, then truth has to prevail. And truth is given Through the natural law, there is a God, and you're not Him. 
And the details come from the pages of the book. So we must become people of the book. And the world will change. Hang on. Paul says in chapter 4, as we wrap up, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming. Well, they will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears and accumulate from themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into the myths. Don't pay attention, Timothy. Always be sober-minded, biblical-minded. Always endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. And then he says, the ministry has taken a toll on me, and the time of my departure is at hand. I will pay the ultimate consequence for this. And he's passing the mantle. What is that consequence? My heart breaks for, for Paul in this text. He says that his first defense, nobody stood with him. They all deserted him. The great apostle Paul, they all deserted him. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. May it be so in your heart and in my heart, in your mind, and in my mind, in this church, and in every church. There is a God, and we're not Him. And He has spoken to us in His Word to teach us how to navigate these perilous times. And it doesn't result in this triumphal Christian dominionism that we win. It ultimately results in our death through persecution, or even more glorious, the sound of a trumpet, even so come Lord Jesus. But He decides the beginning and the end for His glory alone. This is a war that we cannot win. There are souls that we can through the truth that sets us free. May we stand in the truth of God's Word for His glory alone. True truth. Father, thank You. So, so, so important for Your church, for the age in which we live. I pray that we haven't belabored too long. I pray that you've given us at least a, a baseline understanding of our world. And I pray that you would begin the, fl- the flames, uh, the fan the flames of, of truth in our life from its first presuppositions and principles to its ultimate details.